We are actually going to be taking a look at Psalm 127 this morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 127, uh, Pastor Dennis will actually be continuing our series um, uh, next week in the We Are the Church sermon series, but we are taking uh, just a special time this morning as this is the first Sunday of 2021. Can you believe it? We're going to take some special time to look at this psalm. It's one of my favorites. I hope you did have a good Christmas, um, despite some of the uh, travel restrictions and some of the different things that were in place. I do pray you had a good Christmas um, and that you are healthy. Uh, It's good to see Doug here. Um, I heard that you had coronavirus, and you're, you're, you're back in the land of the living. It's good to see you here today. Um, we, uh, we weren't able to go down south this year uh, for obvious reasons, so um, the day after Christmas, we thought, well, we're going to do something to go down south. So we went to Lancaster um, and spent a few days there and had a great time, uh, but we are uh, back, and we are looking at 2021, and, and just want to share some some uh, thoughts from Psalm 127 uh, this morning. As we begin this new year, I want to ask you, as I've asked myself, where does your confidence lie as you look ahead to the new year? I think uh, all of us can say that in 2020, God has clearly shown us the, 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 the futility of self-confidence, the emptiness of self-planning. I mean, at the snap of a finger, everyone's plans were demolished with this uh, worldwide virus. Everyone's confidence in themselves and in their own sufficiency was quickly diminished. And I think, really, despite the inconveniences and the hardships that that this past year has brought, I think it has also brought to to the forefront of our focus some very helpful realities. That our days are not in our own hands. Our plans are as, as Proverbs says, we plan our steps, but it has to be the Lord that establishes those steps. You see, our motto this year could very well be summed up in the first three words of Psalm 127. Unless the Lord. Our complete dependence and, and, and our complete sense of of security, it has to be found in the Lord. Because if it's not found in the Lord, we're going to see that that, that we've been building on sand like the foolish man. And and man, one wave comes comes through and, and that foundation can be demolished. So I know both, I know for me personally, both because of COVID related circumstances and just things that God has been teaching me uh, in my own life throughout 2020, um, the Lord has continually be sh- been showing me uh, my need to fully rely on God for all things. Uh, not that I'm there by any means, but, but the need for that to be the case. 
Uh, not, not only for, for the known, but, but for the unknowns of life. And, and I think all of us could say that the same is true for us. That God has shown us this. So this morning I want us to look at this psalm, Psalm 127, uh, one of my favorites. This psalm is called a psalm of ascents. In other words, a song of going up. Uh, psalm 120 to 134 are all s- psalms of ascents. Uh, what what uh, was... The, the, uh, the case, more than likely, was Psalm 120 to 134 would have been songs that the Jewish people would have been rehearsing among themselves and, and reciting and singing to themselves on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem during the three feasts that all Israelites were required to go to the temple to observe. This psalm would have been on the lips of God's people as they were preparing to worship the Lord in His presence. So I think it's fitting that we look at this psalm to set the tone for this new year. We need to be reminded of our complete dependence on God for all things and His complete sufficiency in all things. So so this morning, the key thought for this psalm that I want us to to, to have fixed in our minds is this. Let's read it together. God desires our complete trust and confidence. How many of you do New Year's resolutions? Anybody? Anybody at all? And I'm not saying you should. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I was just curious. A lot of times it's easy to get caught up in the New New Year's resolutions of eating healthier, exercising more. All those things are good things. Well, here's an excellent goal to have on the forefront of your heart. To give over to the Lord every day your complete trust and confidence. If this is our goal, we will see the Lord both draw out the ugliness of pride and self-sufficiency in our lives, and we will also see the Lord bring His peace where that ugliness of pride and self-sufficiency once existed. Don't we all want that? We may not desire the process because it's painful, but the fruit is righteousness and peace. So let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to guide us this morning. Uh, We're going to look at two things this morning. We're going to look at what this psalm is teaching. And then we're going to close out this morning by looking at key application questions that we can ask ourselves. So let's pray. Lord, we just come to you, Lord. We thank you that we are able to worship you together on this first Sunday of the new year. Lord, we pray for those in our church body, those in our church family that are not able to be with us. God, that you would give continued hope, encouragement, continued health. Lord, we pray for those in our body that are not here because of illness. Lord, that you would uh, provide healing. And Lord, I pray that you would show us this morning by the Holy Spirit... Areas of pride 
and self-sufficiency in our life that has dictated our thoughts, our attitudes, our approaches to different circumstances and responsibilities. And Lord, that we would give those over to you this morning and the next day and the next day and the next. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 127, a psalm of ascents. This psalm was written by Solomon. And that's going to play a key, we're going to see, as to how we even interpret this psalm. But let's start reading in verse 1. Let's read, actually, let's read the whole psalm. It's only five verses. John's already read it. Let's read it again. And then we're going to break apart this psalm and bring out some truths here. Uh, Verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain. You notice a repetition of words here? It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate." So as we read this psalm, we kind of see this psalm can really be broken down into uh, two main sections, verses 1 to 2 and then verses 3 to 5. And, and at, a, at, a, at a first reading of this, you may say, well, how in the world do, do verses 1 and 2 go with verses 3 to 5? It seems like two uh, completely different themes, and, and we're going to look at how all this goes together. But I want us to look at what this psalm is teaching Because it gives us very specific truths that we have to grasp in our Christian life. Verse 1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. What this psalm is first of all teaching is that only God builds the house. Only God. Unless God is at work, those who are only at work at a human level are working in vain. Now what's interesting as we look at the the significance of this truth, this reality that only God builds the house, is that there is a a, a redemptive context that, that Solomon, as the author of Psalm 127, is trying to get across. Solomon is not just coming up with these Uh, these statements out of the clear blue. No, this has taken hold of his heart. And he is instructing the Jewish people regarding the truth of what he is saying. And as Christians, God, as the divine author, is instructing our hearts regarding how we are to view our Christian life. You see, in the Bible, this word house can have several different meanings. A house in the Bible can be simply a family dwelling. Where you live, you're going to your house. 
In the Bible, this word house can also speak of family or, as we're going to see in the context of Solomon, a dynasty, lineage, descendants. So when we see that word house, it can talk about one's descendants that will come after him. The eternal throne in which David and Solomon and their descendants were promised. The word house can also refer to the temple. The house of the Lord where God dwelt. Now this is very interesting because uh, Solomon who's writing this, we see this word house used in 2 Samuel 7. You don't need to turn there for sake of time. But I'm going to read just a couple verses. You remember David said, I have a beautiful house to live in. I have a palace with all of these riches that God has blessed me with. And yet God dwells in a tabernacle, a tent. And David wanted to build a house for God. He wanted to build God a temple. And then, of course, Nath, uh, the prophet Nathaniel says, yes, that's a good idea, go for it. But then in uh, 2 Samuel 7, verse 4, it says, but that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my Dwelling, So we have see that theme of house. But then we jump down to verse 11. And he says um, at the end of verse 11, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. We see in 2 Samuel, uh, in 2, uh, Samuel 7 that there is a play on words with this word house. That David wants to make God a holy dwelling, a temple, a fixed building where God will permanently reside with his people. And God tells David, I do not need a house. I have been dwelling with my people where they have led uh, uh, through the wilderness in a tent. The whole world is my house. But then God says, David, I don't need you to do that for me, but I am going to establish your house. He already had a palace. God was going to establish when he said house, his family descendants to always sit on David's throne. Solomon was no doubt thinking on this uh, along these lines, when, when he says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who, who build it labor in vain. God has promised my father David he would build his house, an eternal throne for the people of God. And unless the Lord does this, no matter what I may do, no matter what my children may do, no matter what my descendants may do, unless the Lord fulfills His promise, it will not happen. 
Folks, are we living our Christian lives in that type of dependence on the Lord? Lord, if it is only by your grace and your strength that I make it to the finish line. It is only by your grace and your strength that I live my everyday life. It is only by your grace and by your strength that I breathe. Unless the Lord builds the house. But notice that next phrase, those who build it labor in vain. There's two truths here. Number one, any labor apart from God is empty. This is the first use of that word vain that we, that we see here. It's, it's utterly useless. It's a waste of time. It's empty. In fact, Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And this psalm is, is reminiscent of the whole book of Ecclesiastes that apart from God, everything is vain. It's empty. It's futile. There's an emphasis here on the futility of man's efforts apart from God. Yet what is our everyday uh, tendency? It is to work, to strive for whatever it may be in the energy of the flesh and only go to God as an afterthought. I mean, man, the, the, the whole COVID scenario that, that we are under, I mean, boy, what a pressure it has been. We have several teachers here in our church. What a pressure it has been trying to coordinate uh, your students and keep track of your students and, 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 and all of those things. And very quickly, you come to the end of yourself and your own energies. Uh, many people working uh, in, in various factories and all of the protocols of COVID and how quickly that, that brings you to the end of your strength all of that is not just an inconvenience of life it is a reminder that God says look to me I am your sustainer I am the one who holds you even in the midst of adversity any labor apart from God is empty, but truth number two with this first idea that only God builds the house is trust in God does not negate labor, but puts labor in the proper perspective. So what Psalm 127 is not saying is don't do anything because only the Lord can build the house. No, in fact, uh, God uh, told David, he told Solomon, that you will have an eternal descendant on your throne. You will have an everlasting house as long as you walk in my ways. There was still human responsibility there. But I like what Charles Spurgeon says regarding this. Just listen along as I read you this statement he made. He said, note that the psalmist does not build the, uh, bid the builder cease from laboring, nor suggest, and we'll see later, that the watchmen should neglect their duty. 
nor that men should show their trust in God by doing nothing. Nay, he supposes that they will do all that they can do, and then he forbids their fixing their trust in what they have done. You get that? And he assures them that all creature efforts will be in vain unless the Creator puts forth his power. So the builder is not to cease building, but the builder is to have a changed perspective that everything is entirely dependent upon God. You know, we can think that we are, as we'll see in verses 3 to 5, raising our children in the ways uh, of a good parent. But unless God is the center of that, all of those lessons and all of those moral moralisms that you're trying to teach your kids are in vain without Christ at the center. Without Christ at the center of your grandparenting, of your marriage. Christ at the center of your job that that he has providentially given you. You see, trust in God does not negate labor, but puts labor in the proper perspective. For some individuals that may be lazy and think, oh, God will handle it, I don't have to do anything, putting labor in the proper perspective could be, you know what? I need to do more for the glory of God. But maybe putting labor in the proper perspective for others would be, I need to stop trying to do so much because I am doing this in my own strength and I am wearing out and my spiritual health is continually a downward slope and I just keep going and keep going and keep going and, 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 and we expect somehow things are just going to magically change. You see, all is vain without Christ at the center. Same thing Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So if there's anything that will make 2021 different, it is removing yourself from the center and putting God in his rightful place. Only God can build the house. But secondly, we see at the end of verse 1, it says similarly, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Truth number two is only God keeps the city. Only God builds the house, and now only God keeps the city. And again, we we want to take this psalm and we want to be mindful not only of the immediate circumstances that we think of with the house, with our families, but we want to think in the scriptures of, of the redemptive themes that are being interwoven here that in the Bible, house and city are connected. For instance, you think of the temple, the house of the Lord, And what is the Lord's city? It is Jerusalem. You think of of Zion, referring both to the temple of the Lord and to the city of Jerusalem. 
The city and the temple were connected that just as God in the Old Testament dwelt in a physical temple, his city was the city of Jerusalem. In the, it is the Lord who must watch, or another way we could translate that, unless the Lord keeps the city. You see, only God can do what God can do. This brings us to another reality here that mankind has proven his inability to keep what God has entrusted. Did you know that in Genesis 2.15, the same word that is used for watches and the watchman or the keeper is used here in Genesis 2.15. And again, I will read this for you. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. You see, Adam was to be the watchman of God's presence. The garden of Eden, where God dwelt with man. And we all know what happened, right? Wasn't a very good keeper, was he? And Solomon realizes that the promise of God for an eternal house from which this king would come, the very reason we celebrated Christmas, and the very city of God, it could not be preserved apart from God. God has to be the promise maker, and God must be the promise keeper for anything to turn out right. You know, the same thing's true in our life. God has given us very specific promises in the Bible. Are you trusting on God to keep those promises? The problem is, I think many times, we're not in God's word enough to be reminded of what those promises really are. So you know what we start to do? We replace the promises of the Bible with the promises of our own expectations. And we see those expectations fail, and therefore we blame it on God. God is the promise maker in our life and he is the promise keeper. And, and our God has told us that if we are in Christ, he will keep us until the very last day. He will start the work he began. He will finish the work he started in us. You see, mankind has proven his inability to keep what God has entrusted and that leads us to the reality that we can only properly keep guard over what God is already preserving. Doesn't that bring some comfort? That we are keeping guard, we are called to keep guard over what God is already promised to preserve. When difficulty enters into our families, we can run to the promises of God that, that God is working out His purposes and though we may not understand it, we can run to God with our requests knowing that He is the one who is the preserver, whatever that preservation looks like. 
God is the preserver of Covington Baptist Church. Even more widely than that, God is the preserver of the church. You see, many times we think, boy, if I'm not doing it, it's not going to get done. But are we looking to the great preserver to accomplish the things that we cannot and to faithfully carry out the things God has called us to carry out? I mean, man, when we start to carry out and to guard, to keep watch over the things that God has called us to keep watch of, that rearranges even our priorities. In other words, the spiritual life of, of my kids starts to take precedence of all the things they're involved in. Are they involved in sports? Are they involved in this? Are they involved in that? Because I want to keep guard over what God has promised to preserve. When we seek to say, God, I want to keep guard over what you have called me to keep guard of that you are preserving, it makes us more attentive to our marriages, not letting things get swept under the rug. Because our priority is now that which God has said we need to be watchful over. Not how much money or how big of a house we have or how many cars or all of these things. It is how are we doing spiritually as a couple. Is Christ the center of our home? You're in college. Your your, your goal is not simply to make certain grades or to land a specific job. It is to make Christ the center of your life because all of those other things in eternity will be in vain. That is our goal. You see, we wear ourselves out when we are trying to keep watch over the things that God has not called us to keep watch over. And we know those things God has called us to keep watch over are the things that He has promised to preserve. says at the end of verse 2, or at the end of verse 1, like it said in, its, in the parallel uh, phrase above it, the watchman stays awake in vain. So again, unless God is guarding, unless our efforts are involved in what God is involved in, unless our efforts are viewed towards what is God calling me, all of that work is in vain. Then we come to verse 2. We see that not only must we realize that only God builds the house, not only must we realize that only God keeps the city, but we must realize in verse 2 our need to acknowledge our dependence or our very need for God. Look at what verse 2 says. It is vain. Again, that's the third time that this word vain is used. Each time uh, uh, it is, uh, in the Hebrew, it is, it is put to the forefront to emphasize vanity, emptiness, uselessness apart from God. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. 
Truth number one here, acknowledging our need for God, our inability is highlighted, get this, our inability is highlighted by the fall. And when I say the fall, I'm not talking about the pretty autumn leaves falling from the trees. I'm talking about sin coming into this world. Remember Adam, who was the keeper of the garden and his failure? Everything, if it was totally up to to, to mankind, would fall flat on its face. End of story, if it were not God that is keeping the city. But then we also are reminded again of the futility of self. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. This is the descriptor of our natural lives without Christ. It's the idea of burning the candle at both ends. How many of you are familiar with burning the candle at both ends? We can definitely raise our hands to that. Did you know that that can be a very, uh, there's times in life that that is very necessary, seasons in life that that is very necessary, but when that becomes the norm, it is very unhealthy, both physically and spiritually. It is vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest And what's that next phrase say? Eating the bread of anxious toil. Mm, Doesn't that kind of bread sound yummy? Some anxious toil bread. Now if Rachel's making bread at our house, I have the anxious toil of when will that be done, of waiting. But that's not what this is talking about. In fact, this phrase can even have the idea that the very purpose that one rises up early and goes late to rest is because they are desirous to eat this bread, but the only thing it's producing is anxious toil. You're going to need to take some Tums if you do this too often. The purpose so many times that we get up early, that we go late to bed, and, and, and in between the getting up early and the going to bed super late is nothing but anxiety from start to finish and trying to complete our, our, our to-do list that, that so many times are kind of self-focused to-do list. Yes, we're, we're, we're doing certain things because they have to get done, but... Um, when it comes down to it, and Rachel and I have even talked about this with our own schedules, when it comes down to it, those lists, they seem good, but they're actually pretty self-serving. I need to get this done to get this off my mind. I need to get this done. I, and when we really get down to the nitty-gritty of many of our to-do lists, it's all about self. This really has got to get done. So, kids, don't bother me. This has got to get done. Church family, don't bother me. This has got to get done. God, don't bother me. This has got to get done. But this is the action of our natural selves without Christ. It's interesting that this eating the bread of anxious toil, 
Again, Solomon is putting this in a redemptive context. Eating the bread of anxious toil or anxious anxiety. It is almost verbatim of what we read in chapter 3, verse 17 of Genesis. When God says to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. That's the word that's associated with anxious toil. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So in other words, what we read of in verse 2 of this eating the bread of anxious toil, this is the focus, this is the reality, this is the result of one who is living a life characteristic of an unbeliever. Of one who does not have the redeeming work of Christ in their heart and life. And what a, what, what a shame that is uh, to my own heart. And what a shame I think we would all say it is to all of us that we find ourselves so many times characterized by verse 2. When God's people should be living the way the end of verse 2 says. For He gives to His beloved sleep. You see, our inability here is highlighted by the fall. We cannot, left to ourselves, function through this life in the right way. But yet, the end of verse 2, Solomon gives us some good news that our ability is highlighted through Christ. We are His beloved. In fact, Deuteronomy 33.12, it says, the beloved of the Lord dwell in safety. It doesn't say there's no enemies around the beloved of the Lord, but yet they dwell in safety because they are under God's care. He is keeping the city. In Psalm 108, verses 5 and 6, the, the psalmist says, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. In other words, everywhere in the Old Testament and in the New Testament where we see this word beloved used, it is always used of God's special loved people. When we realize that we are in God's hands, that we are made secure through Christ, what is the result? We are God's beloved, therefore we can rest in God's providential care. Romans 8 says, If God has not withheld from us His Son, how will He withhold from us all things? Not all of our, our lusts, not all of our wants, but everything that God has destined us to have in Christ. You know, earlier in Romans, it says that God's people are inheritors of the very world. 
the new heaven and new earth. We are God's beloved. Therefore, we can rest in God's providential care. This sleep that's being referred here, we've already seen from verse 1, this is not the sleep of laziness. This is not the sleep of idleness. No, this is the sleep of security, of confidence, because of God. The very mention of sleep throughout the Bible it highlights God's providential care. God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he made Eve. Jesus was asleep in the boat during the storm while the disciples were frightened. God spoke to his people in the scriptures in the Old Testament in their sleep and gave them his precious promises Why is that highlighted? Because we are never most vulnerable than when we are sleeping. And yet God is there awake and well. I know for myself, so many a night, I'm laying there staring at the ceiling, having all of these thoughts going through my mind. To-do lists over here, uh, worries over here, uh, thoughts over here. And one of the only things that has helped me with that has been quoting Scripture. One of my favorites is the simple verse we all learn. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not into thine own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. The importance of Scripture memory is just... It is highlighted not in the easy times when we should be memorizing it. It's in the difficult times when we need the the soothing balm of God's word. God gives his children rest. Rest from the worldly ideals. Rest from the standards of culture. Rest from what society dictates to us. We can cast those things aside when God is our confidence. But then in verses 3 to 5, very quickly, we see a fourth truth. Not only is it only God that builds the house, not only is it only God that keeps the city, not only must we acknowledge our need for God instead of burning the candle on both ends, producing just simply eating this bread of anxiety. We see in verses 3 to 5, God provides for those who trust in him. In verse 3, again, we kind of come to this, uh, to this different section of the psalm, and, and, and now Solomon moves from the house to a city to children. And you can see the logic of that progression. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. So we see here, the first truth that God provides for those who trust in him, we see that children are an inheritance and a reward. 
This was especially true uh, in biblical culture where, where the very uh, inheritance, the, ver- the land, the property, all of the ownings uh, would go to children. And if there was no child, it could be lost out of the family forever. And that's why you would have such things as kinsmen redeemers in the Old Testament that a family member would, would marry uh, a, a wife who their husband died and, and the, 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 the inheritance would, would be lost and, and that brother would, would uh, have a child with, with, with this new wife and it would not be in the name of his, himself, it would be in the name of the deceased family member so that the inheritance could stay in the family. But we may have trouble thinking what is the logic in going from trust in God to all of the sudden children. And I think that in following Solomon's thinking here, where we see house referring, yes, to each one's house, but ultimately referring to that promise of God that he would provide an eternal house from the line of David, that God would watch over his city where he would dwell. That then we come to this theme of children. That Solomon is actually giving us the answer for the reason we trust in God in verses 1 and 2. You remember in Genesis 3.16 that God says to the woman amidst the curses of, of the garden, curses from the fall, He says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Just the previous verse in Genesis 3.15, God says from your offspring is going to come one who defeats the serpent. But yet now in verse 16, we see a problem, that there will be a problem with childbearing. There is going to be difficulty bringing forth seed. So there's a tension here in the promise. And I think verse 3 is bringing to the forefront of our minds in this redemptive theme that, that we see in Psalm 127, that God is saying the promised seed will come. God will undo the curse of sin through childbearing and specifically the promised seed from the house of David. The very reason we celebrate Christmas. God is always faithful to His promises. If He is faithful to the greatest promises, will He not be faithful to the smaller promises of our lives? And this also does not negate the universal principle here that children are a gift from God. The fruit of the womb is His reward. That's very contrary to the way culture often thinks, is it not? Many times children are a disruption. Children are career breakers. Children are... I have a tendency to get in the way. That is the message we often hear from culture. 
That's not what the Bible says. We see here the reality of, of, of childbearing brings us, has brought us Jesus Christ. But we all, as we await his coming, uh, children are a blessing and a reward. In fact, verse 4 says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. They are valuable. You see, children are strength. Verse 5 says, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. You have the, the, the imagery of the, the marksman. He has his bow, he has his arrows, the children, and the more qui- uh, qui- uh, arrows that are in that quiver, the better. The more blessed. It says, he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The gate in, in Hebrew culture was where business was transacted. So many children could provide a secure future. Many children would provide witnesses in legal matters. Security. As, uh, as our children get older, I have to be more discerning with the illustrations I, I use as they can easily say, why did you say that, Dad? Um, but Sammy's not at that level yet. Sammy, for us, was our unexpected child. Uh, uh, we, we thought, hey, I think, I think we're done at three. And in fact, I remember, I remember it was like an aha moment. Um, one day, at a, uh, we were at a pool and, and uh, you know, the, children, uh, the kids, Timmy, Isaac, and Julia, you know, we used to have to be in the pool with them to make sure they didn't drown. And we had just gotten to the stage where we could actually, yes, play with them, but then sit on the side, talk to each other while they played. And we were like, wow, we're in a different stage of life now. This is pretty nice. And it was shortly after that that we found out we're having Sammy. And, and that was very unexpected, and we, we cherish him. We can't imagine life without him. And as he's growing, he's, interact, he's becoming more and more part of the family, interacting. But it has been difficult for us, 2020, getting readjusted to baby mode. And, and in God's good providence and humor, he's our most high-maintenance child. I, I literally bought him, when we were in Lancaster at the Disney outlet, I bought him a sweatshirt that had Spider-Man on one side and Venom on the other <laughs> because that characterizes his personality. He'll be so happy. And then he's tossing his head and screaming the next moment. Life has gotten harder with the precious gift of Sammy for us but how we continually go back to even this psalm and say, this is an eternal investment. God has gifted us with his good gifts that can compare to nothing else. You see, folks, and maybe you can't have children. Maybe God hasn't led you in your life in that way, and that is not to say that anybody is less than, but children are a good gift from God. They are strength. They are security. They are an inheritance and a reward. 
Are we treating them like that? And I don't mean making them feel more special, though you you may need to if you're always yelling at your kid. I'm talking about training them and taking it seriously to raise them in the ways of the Lord, to sharpen that little arrow that God has given you. Or maybe that big arrow that's about to leave the house in a few years. We will only have that type of priority when we realize the lessons that we have already talked about in Psalm 127. And we raise our children in the ways of the Lord, looking to that one promised child who defeated all of his enemies at the gate. And on the cross, he crushed the head of the serpent. And we watch over, we build, we guard the treasure that God has given us because of the promised child that he has provided. In three minutes, I'm going to give you some closing application questions. I want to ask you, as I've thought over these questions several times in my own mind, what place does Jesus have in your thoughts, desires, attitudes, actions? What place does he have? Does he follow a close second behind yourself? Maybe a distant third. This whole psalm is about what our perspective is to be. And it starts in the thoughts. It starts in the heart. It moves to the desires. A change of attitudes that then results in a change of action. The action doesn't just happen. Number two. As we read, especially uh, verse two rising up early, going to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil. Can I ask you, as I ask myself, who are you functionally depending upon in the hours of your day? Again, we don't just sit there and do nothing because, oh, God's going to get it done. But it's a change of perspective. That it is God's agenda that we are to follow question number three right along with question number two do you find yourself constantly toiling yet accomplishing little of value you see we can be busy but not be truly productive You know what? If that house gets clean and it is spick and span, or that to-do list gets done at work, yes, we need to be good workers and we need to be good house managers and we need to be all of those things. But when you pillow your head, if that is the only satisfaction you're finding in your day, guess what's going to happen the next morning? Those kiddos are going to wake up. That house is going to be dirty. That to-do list for the next day is going to be there. 
You see, we can be very busy, but not actually producing much of value. But we have the promise that what is done for Christ will last. Man, when when we're going through that to-do list, (coughs) excuse me, when we're mothering, when we're fathering, when we're working on our marriage, when we're working on the job, when we're ministering to other people, man, when Christ is at the center of that, you know why that's of lasting value? Not because the tasks get done, but because God starts teaching us things in that task. Like trust, like setting agendas, waiting upon him, putting all of, our bas- all of our eggs not in the basket of self, but in the basket of eternal investment. Question number four, do words like beloved, sleep, and blessed, which we read in Psalm 127, do they resonate with you? Or man, are they like foreign words that you've never heard before or at least never experienced? You see, these are descriptions of those whose hope is set completely on God. Not that that hope doesn't waver. Not that we have to get back and cast those burdens back on the Lord every day and every moment of every day many times. But as God starts that refining process in our lives, these words should characterize us more and more, no matter how slow that that progression may seem. And then fifthly and finally, will 2021 be different for you spiritually than 2020? That's a question we all need to ask ourselves. We can't expect to just fall upon spiritual growth. We can't expect to just happen to come across a greater view of God and a lesser view of self. We have to ask God to do that within us and then we need to respond to what he tells us through his word and through the Holy Spirit in acts of obedience. As God transforms our lives. So as we close, we see once again, God desires our complete trust and confidence. In the context of family, house building, city building, we would be greatly hurt by our kids if they did not trust us. If they did not think that we were worthy enough or great enough to go to in their time of need. What do you think God feels like? 